In the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself addresses the seven churches of John's time with advice, warnings, and commendations. But these early chapters are not just for people of the past. They're actually prophecies that set the stage for the rest of history until Christ's return. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. I'm your host, Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being here with me today. We are continuing our end time series today, and actually we are switching gears pretty considerably. We have lo- uh, we have spent a lot of time uh, in the past several weeks, this is I think part 24 or 25, on a lot of things. We, we really have built up context for finding out who Mystery Babylon is, who the Antichrist power on the earth is what the mark of the beast is, the image of the beast. So a lot of these heavy-hitting topics we have covered. So if you are new to this series and you're just clicking on this uh, for the first time, then I highly recommend that you go to review those previous episodes because there's a lot of just wealthy, rich information in there on all of these really important topics that unfortunately, Uh, And again, this is what motivated me to create this series. Unfortunately, a lot of people are not discussing correctly. They really are, because most people have been fooled by dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is, if you've never heard that term before, it's a type of interpretation to the end times. It has a lot of aspects to it. I'm not going to break it down so much today, because today's focus is just the seven churches. But we've talked about it, and again, if you go back to the very first episode... We talked about the various end times views, and one of them is dispensationalism. And so there are certain hallmarks that dispensationalism is characterized by, and it's a very popular way of seeing the end times events today. Unfortunately, because it's wrong, and it's wrong for very serious reasons. We're not splitting hairs here on various technicalities, but we're talking about very serious consequences to what you believe about the end times. And again, if you remember some of the things that we've talked about where what is the end game of these end times events? What's happening and what's on the horizon? We are in the last generation. I believe that, I, you know, I, I, st- I believe I stand on solid ground when I say that because as you'll soon see, today is just another piece of evidence. Today is another piece of evidence with the seven churches that we really are in those final Moments. I mean, I don't know when Christ will return. I don't think anybody can ever predict that. But ultimately, we can read the writing on the wall. The The idea that we can't understand a sense of proximity, or at least the season of Christ's return, is actually wrong, because Christ gave us a lot of information to pinpoint ourselves in history and to understand, oh my gosh, like where are we in history? And this is the whole point behind interpreting Bible prophecy with a historical lens, which we have done for the last 20 whatever episodes, and understanding where are you in history, because God created prophecy, and this will tie into today's episode on the seven churches. God created prophecy, not just for the people in the past, which is what preterism teaches, and not for people at the very end of time only, which is what futurism teaches. Dispensationalism is a branch, or a I should say, yeah, it's a branch within futurism or futurist eschatology. So historicism or historical, the historical way of interpreting Bible prophecy actually teaches that 
Bible prophecy is fu- being fulfilled throughout history. It's it's an ongoing, you know, unfolding thing. It's a series of events. That way, everybody, every generation in history, and again, you'll see that very clearly with today's episode and the following episodes. We'll talk about the trumpets and the seals because they all kind of tie together. But you'll see how all this really points to, to, again, the truth that God wants everybody in history to find themselves in Bible prophecy. So you know where you're at. And particularly this generation, we are at the very end. We're at the we're at the very end, my friends. And ultimately, again, we don't know when Christ will return. But we are in the generation that will see the mark of the beast. And if that's the case, then we know Christ will return because he will leave some people alive. And some people will be left alive, obviously. So that means that once the mark of the beast gets implemented, we are in a very critical moment of time. Hallelujah, we know that the time is very near. But until then, it doesn't really matter. The point is still the same. We must get continually close through Christ, through prayer, through just every day, you know, living one day at a time, ultimately, right? You can't really... Look at look at how crazy the world is. Look at how crazy the world is. I remember 20 years ago, you could make a plan for your life. And again, not that... <laughs> Not that making a plan does anything anyway. It's God's plan that stands anyway. But still, you could make a plan, you know, 10, 15 years, and you'd be you'd be set in that plan, so to speak, relatively speaking, I guess, depending on what it was. But ultimately, the world was much more predictable and stable. But as we are nearing this final phase where the Antichrist power is going to make a grab for it, a last-ditch effort to be worshipped, you're seeing incredible instability in the world, and there is no way you can make a plan five years from now what you're going to be doing. It's absolute madness because we are in a in a final phase where the entire system, the earthwide system, is being changed and prepared for the final thing, which is the mark of the beast, worshiping of Satan basically across the earth. Now that could be through. Again, we talked about these, and I'm not going to open them up today because today is a totally different topic, but go back and check out those previous episodes. We talked about how this will very likely be a Christian nationalist system because this is what was on the earth for over 1,200 years, a union of church and state under the Pope. If that sounds crazy to you, again, go back and watch or listen to the previous episodes. Or it could even be a false Christ, the appearing of Satan, and masquerading as the Son of God. And because everybody believes, like dispensationalism and futurism, that that Christ has to come and basically rule for a thousand literal years on earth and sort of usher in this golden age where people are still dying and there's enemies that need to be persecuted, do you see how all of this is leading to a very, very dangerous situation if you're deceived by the wrong way of interpreting the Bible? This is the whole point. Again, it's like it's we're not splitting hairs on philosophy here or, oh, well, you know, you believe this about spiritual gifts and I believe that. We're not talking about this. We're talking about something of immense consequence because if you believe that G- if you're set in your heart that Jesus has to reign on the throne of Jerusalem for a thousand literal years where there will still be sin and death because the enemies under his feet will be, you know, put to death, basically, because that's the millennial reign. That's the golden age. 
If you believe that, and Satan fulfills that by masquerading as the Son of God, institutes this seeming golden age, you know, event where now we're in the golden age. Now we're in the millennial kingdom. But wait a minute. You have to, you know, worship to be part of this millennial kingdom. And of course, people will think they're worshiping God. But in essence, they're taking the mark of the beast. And if you are awake to that and you are saying, no, 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 that's not Jesus. This is a false system. You're one of the enemies that's going to be put under his feet. Do you see how all of this lines up so perfectly? It's really profound. And we've talked about this quite a bit throughout this series. And again, I don't want to diverge. But today we are switching gears from all of that. So go back and check it out if this is your first time. I highly recommend those episodes, especially things like the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, all these things that people aren't really talking about, you know, in, in a way that's edifying. They're, they're talking about things that are fleshly and worldly that uh, really have no profit whatsoever. But today we're switching gears. We're talking about the seven churches of Revelation. And of course, we're also going to talk about the seals and trumpets in the ensuing episodes. So we're wrapping up this series, but there are some still some very important topics to discuss. And one of them is this whole thing of the seven churches because it ties into the seals and to the trumpets. And a lot of people are not aware of the connection. And so when they look at the seals and the trumpets, which are judgments, they see those as things that haven't happened yet or that they will happen and they're interpreting. I mean, it's, I've seen all kinds of variations on this. But again, if you see these as historical things, you will realize that actually, spoiler alert for the future episodes, we are between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We're between the sixth and seventh seal, which again, if you see these things in history, you realize, oh my gosh, we really are in that final generation, man, which is crazy and also extremely exciting because we have a chance to see the return of our Lord. So it's a crazy thought. But what are the seven churches? The seven churches are a series of letters that John wrote to the different churches of his time, and we'll look at that. This was in the first century, and they were basically messages from Christ himself. Certain words that Christ wanted to to say to these groups of believers, and each one of them had different things that he wanted to say. Now, preterism, which again is all about the past, sees these things, these letters, as just written for the, the churches of John's time, that's it. They have no significance to us whatsoever. Another way of looking at this is by spiritualizing what these letters mean into, you know, each church is basically a metaphor of our own lives and it's all just spiritual poetic language because it's part of Revelation. So my approach today is going to be neither of these. My approach, and I encourage you to have the same approach, which is a historical approach where historicism acknowledges that God does things physically. The seven churches were real churches. This is We have evidence for that archaeologically. At the same time, he uses physical things to create spiritual lessons and spiritual realities and to, and to point to greater spiritual truths. Again, a simple example we've done, we've done over and over throughout this series, the sanctuary that the Hebrews had in the wilderness. The sanctuary points to the plan of salvation, to the ministry of Christ, to Christ himself through the tabernacle. We've talked about this, especially in the Abomination of Desolation episode, 
Because again, if you understand what the sanctuary actually represents, then you understand what the abomination that makes the sanctuary desolate represent. If your eyes are on physical things like the Jewish sanctuary, then you will falsely interpret the abomination of desolation as just a physical thing, like when maybe a Roman emperor came in and put their standard up, you know, after destroying the temple or whatever else, right? There's a lot of theories when it comes to preterism. But we saw how those theories basically crumble because ultimately there's there's many things that are missing in those explanations. But nevertheless, historicism says that these were physical things, which they were, but they also have a type, a typological meaning, meaning there, there's a truth to them, a prophetic sense to them. And we can see why there's also a lot of other evidence that points to this being not just a physical thing to physical people, but having a prophetic quality to it. And ultimately, again, if you've studied the Bible enough and you've studied typology, the study of typology is a fascinating study, and I, I highly recommend that you look into that. Typology is really fascinating because it proves God's infinite genius in how he choreographs these various events to where they have, there's physical people in the Bible, there's physical things that happen, and yet all of these things are designed to portray future spiritual realities. The high priest and Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve, you know, they, they typified Jesus and the bride. There's so many, I could go on, every chapter in the Bible, every book in the Bible has something that it points to about the plan of salvation or Jesus. And so this is really fascinating because the churches then are not just physical churches. They are, they're representing something more. They're, they're prophetic in a sense. And we're going to look at what exactly that entails. But given everything so far that we've looked at, and again, if, if you're just joining, then obviously this is new for you, but everything that we've looked at in this series, we've proven beyond a shadow of a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that historicism is true. It is the true way that we should interpret Bible prophecy for several reasons. I'm not going to go into them here, but we looked at things like the day-to-year principle. We looked at how that's validated with the archaeology, starting with Daniel's 70 weeks and how Daniel's 70 weeks is tied to every other time prophecy, which is also mirrored in Revelation, and so therefore everything is historical. So given everything we've done so far, it would make sense that the seven churches also have a historical meaning. We saw, again, the problems of preterism, which teaches that everything happened in the past, it doesn't concern us, which again, if you were the Antichrist, you would want people to do what? Either swerve to the right or to the left. Either it happened in the past, it doesn't concern us, or no, no, it's going to happen in the future, don't worry about it. You know, we aren't there yet. Anything to prevent you from looking in the present and identifying where am I in history and how does this relate to Bible prophecy? This is the thing. And again, the Bible says don't swerve to the left or to the right many, many times. But we saw the problems with preterism, with things like the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. We also saw problems with a lot of amillennials. Now, I tend to have some amillennial perspectives. I, I do believe the millennium is now. It's a spiritual reality. And we talked about that. And and again, go check those out. But there are many problems with that view as well because they over-spiritualize everything. You know, like Mystery Babylon is this spiritual reality of some generic government that's going to come in the future. And again, it's like you realize the Bible is giving you very specific clues. 
It's a woman. A woman represents a church. She's a prostitute, so it's an apostate church. She sits on seven hills. There's only one church that's called the Great City or the Eternal City that sits on seven hills that's a church. There's only one candidate for that, and that's the Vatican. But we talked about that. And again, if you over-spiritualize things, you are losing yourself to metaphor. So again, you can go one one way or the other. Either you go super literally and fleshly, or you go over the board with spiritualization to where you, you just lose sense of anything could be anything. Make sense? And so we want to avoid these extremes. That's why historicism is the way to interpret the Bible, the Bible prophecy. Now, historicism is applicable to every church throughout the last 2,000 years. It's also backed by evidence, and we'll see that. And it and it's, proves that the Bible's a prophetic book. It really does. I mean... How can you prove the Bible is prophetic unless you can verify through history that all of these things indeed have happened and, you know, proves that God is sovereign over time and space? Now, again, historicism also gives us an idea of where we are in history, and that's very important because (laughs) every generation has something that Christ has told them. It's very important to these seven churches. The seven churches that John was writing to, very interestingly enough, in, they match perfectly with the order and history of the church. And you'll see that it's so fascinating. I love this topic because, again, it's kind of a, typo, a, a typology topic. And ultimately, it, it just proves God's genius and poetry at work with, with all the things that he does. But the seven churches also match the seven seals and the seven trumpets, as we will see in a later episode. But again, remember, we talked about this from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. The spiritual comes before the physical. The verse says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So again, this is a principle that's very biblically sound, that the spirit, the physical comes first, then the spiritual. Circumcision was a physical reality. It was something that happened, but it was there to paint a picture of something that you couldn't see, like circumcising your heart, which is what the Bible says. Well, what does that mean? Obviously, you're not cutting your chest open and doing something to your heart. It's talking about getting a new heart and new desires being made again into a new creation. That's what is softening the heart. We all have hardened hearts before God acts on them and circumcises it with the circumcision not made by hands. This is what the Bible says. So ultimately, we have to have spiritual eyes to see things. But... If you are focused on literal things, like dispensationalism is, sadly, they're focused on just physical things, they tend to ignore typology. So if you see only the literal, if you only, on the other side of that, if you only spiritualize things, then you are going to get lost. So you're going to miss the context of some very important things. So a couple important things before we get started. This will probably be a shorter episode, but I want to remind you of the end times prophetic timeline, and that is something that we, I made for you that's, it's a free resource, and it's on a Google Sheet. Again, if you're listening to this, then, you know, you can probably just click the description, because I'll put the link for it there, all the, all the resources, and go check it out. So basically why that's important is you can see how all these things, let me just zoom out here, 
it's basically it's a visual uh, timeline that I made on a Google sheet that, that outlines the, every prophecy. You have revelation with the seals, trumpets, and the two witnesses, the um, you know, the first beast, the second beast, you have the trumpets, everything is outlined again, and it's compared to with Daniel, where you have all these things, and you can look at it visually and see, wow, all these things actually really go together. It's it seems complicated, but when you really put it out in a visual way, and I'm a visual person, uh, you know, it it seems very much related. Now, the seven churches are on there as well, and they are basically compared to the seven seals. So you have the trumpets, you have the seals, and then you have the churches. You have these basically three three layers of, of prophecy. And you can see how they all pretty much are line in line with one another. And we're going to look at how these things fulfill. Now, there's certain things, again, that are different because the seals have to do with judgment. So do the trumpets. But you can see, in general, they flow through the same periods of time, which is, again, very, very interesting um, because time is very much ordered and constructed very intentionally by God. And we see that through prophecy. We see that through typology. It's really fascinating. Now, again, the, the seven churches, another thing I want to point out is that the seven churches are real. They're very much real. We're going to read something here from, this is basic training, brothers and sisters in Christ, digging deeper into God's word. The seven churches in Revelation. Seven churches in Revelation, literal locations in Asia Minor. So they were real places. You know, you have uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The seven churches in Revelation refer to seven literal churches described in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These early Christian churches were located in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, during the era of the Roman Empire. Although the actual churches ceased to thrive in the centuries of Muslim control, after the Romans, the archaeological remains of all seven locations currently exist in present-day Turkey. And you, again, you can see you know, a map of them, and, and you'll see that the postal route, which is so interesting, again, this is not by coincidence, not by accident. The postal route between these churches, the way that they would deliver mail and deliver various things, is the chronological order of how the different stages of the church Basically, okay, so let's kind of identify what's going on here. These seven churches, seven's a nice prophetic number as well, but these seven churches represent the seven stages of the church in the millennial kingdom. Again, remember the millennial kingdom is from when Christ ascended to basically take the throne and rule. He's ruling in heaven right now to when he returns, right? So when he ascended, he fulfilled the vision in Daniel 9 that Daniel saw of the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days and basically being given dominion, full dominion, like officially being made king. He saw the coronation. And so that happened after the ascension. And that was obviously a long time ago, about 2,000 years ago. And when Christ returns, uh, that whole period between these two events, between the ascension and the return of Christ is the millennial kingdom. It's the time that Christ is ruling, because he has to rule with his enemies under his feet. Now, is that true? It is true, because the enemies are alive and well. You can see that any day. Just turn the news on. But when he returns, he's going to judge. He's, there's going to be a resurrection. Death is going to be destroyed. He's going to hand the kingdom over to God the Father, and 
the Trinity will basically rule on earth through Christ in eternal, in eternity. It's going to be the eternal state. So that's very different than the idea that he will be king in the future and he has to reign in Jerusalem while there's still sin and death in the world. Do you see how that's a counterfeit? But again, I, I digress. The point of this is that throughout this period of time, while Christ went away and he's coming back, that period of time, the millennium, has different stages that the church is going through. And Christ prophesied this to basically give a message to each of those different generations. And this is so important because, again, it helps us identify the Antichrist power on the earth. It helps us identify what happened with the church. It helps us identify what church we're in historically. Are we in the fifth church, the sixth church? Well, actually, we're in the seventh church, and you'll find that out shortly. But back to this little map here, the point is that if you look at these seven churches, and you can look these up on Google anywhere you want, but the postal route is the order in which these seven phases of the church have happened. It's really profound. So it starts with Ephesus, then it goes to Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Theatra, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea is the, is the final one on the postal route. So all of this physical reality actually relates to spiritual things. So this is a very interesting thing. So the first thing I want to say is we know from Revelation 1, verse 19, that this is a time prophecy throughout time. And, and let's go to that text really quick. It says, this is again Jesus speaking, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. This is in the beginning of Revelation. The context that Jesus is talking to John is historical. The things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will be. Will be is a future tense. It's about a future thing that's happening. So all of these things now that are following this statement are prophetic, are historical in nature. So that's one reason, one very big reason, why we can support the idea that this that the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they're not just for the people living in the past. But each church, how, how what's the structure? Each church has sort of a structure that Christ is talking to them. And they have basically a, a rebuke, a commendation, some warnings. They're ba- Christ is giving them commentary on their faith and on the things he wants them to change, if at all. Some of them don't have rebukes and some of the things that he likes. Now, also, each church has its own name, right? We went through that, like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. And these and these names are very interesting because they, again, it's just that the wisdom of God, they mean things that are very specific to that particular time of history. Not only were the actual real names for the churches, <laughs> but those names and in the order that they were given show again, that this is a prophetic text dealing with different phases of the church. Very interesting. There's also a character of the church in these names, which again relates to their generation in some way. And there's also a promise that Christ gives them. So the question is, what are the odds? You have to ask yourself very clearly, when you you see these types of typological things, what are the odds that all of these things would intersect. What are the odds that the postal route between these churches 
would be the same order that we see the church evolving and changing throughout history in seven different phases. What are the odds that the names of the churches themselves have significance for each of those phases? And again, it's it's very clear to me, and it's clear to anybody with eyes to see, that this is more than just a physical thing. It's not just talking about, oh, just the church. I mean, we are being ignorant if that's that's where we leave it. And I think that that's a shame because Bible prophecy was written for everybody to take from and say, okay, where am I? Okay, great, I'm in the third church. What does God have to say to me specifically? Right? Not, oh, well, that happened in the past. I guess God doesn't really have anything to say to me. Do you see how dismissive that is? And it's a shame because there's such valuable information uh, in these prophecies. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. The first church is Ephesus, and we'll read a little bit about each one. This is in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and you can, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Keep keep mind of some of these imageries about removing the lampstand, because it will come in importance later. Verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is the promise that we talked about. Every church has a promise, which is very hopeful and very cool. So what do we take from this? Well, obviously Ephesus was a real church, but what does it mean for us prophetically? Well, Ephesus was the first church. And that's, again, these times are going to be approximate, but it's about zero to 100 A.D., Right? It's, the, it's the apostolic church, which, again, Ephesus means desirable. That may relate to, you know, basically the desire, the desire that the apostles had for the gospel, the passion that they had. Now, remember one note here as we go into these names. I'm not dogmatic about what these names mean. There's several possible meanings. Ancient etymology of names is pretty tricky, so these meanings aren't always 100% exact. But there are things that we can infer, and again, there's so many things that intersect that it's not just coincidence. But this is the Apostolic Church. It was founded by Paul. It detested false apostles. We know from the letters from various people like Jude and John and Paul and Peter that they all detested false apostles because there were already people teaching false gospels, false things about the resurrection, that it didn't happen or it already happened. I mean, things that Really, if you look at today, there's nothing new under the sun. People are still talking about the Christ consciousness or that it's, you know, Jesus is not going to return. I mean, same stuff has been going on for 2,000 years. But people in the beginning also hated the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were basically a group of people, it was a sect, that were universalists. They were also kind of Gnostic, if I believe I'm correct here, because they believed that basically... Sin is forgiven. The body doesn't really count for anything, so you can just do whatever you want. It's your soul that matters. And again, these things come from pagan 
Greek philosophy. And so they were universalists. They, they basically had license to sin because Christ died on the cross. And so obviously that was a heresy. And Christ commended the apostolic church for fighting against these heretics, for, for rebuking them, for exposing them. But he also said, you need to get your fire back to the apostolic church. Because of course you had, you know, people like Paul, but then you had the next generation after that who were detesting these horrible doctrines, but they were losing their fire a little bit compared to people like the apostles, obviously, like the the people who were around Christ, like Paul uh, and Peter and, and James and John. So that's the first church. Overall, pretty good. But then we move to the second church, which is again from around 180 to about 313 AD, and this is Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, the name Smyrna is associated with the word mirror, M-Y-R-R-H. Mir, if, if you aren't familiar, is associated with sacrifice, its sweet aroma. The, these things were used for sacrifices, for anointing, and they're, they're pretty common in the Old Testament. And so Mir and Smyrna is associated with the second church, which was very persecuted. It's the persecuted church. Again, that was from about 100 A.D., to about 313 AD, where people were persecuted like crazy by the Roman Empire mostly, but also by the Jews. But they were they were killed, they were tortured, they were chased down. And it was a very rough time for Christianity. That was kind of the second phase of the church. So let's read that a little bit. This is from Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And it's it's this one's pretty short, but it's all good stuff. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. Isn't that interesting that this is writing about, this is to a real church at the time, but it also applies to the second phase of the church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And this, remember this phrase, because we're going to come back to it later with um, the last church, Laodicea. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So again, you have the promise, which is always relating to the resurrection or the eternal state. So this is, a, he's these all these churches were being persecuted to some degree. They're, they're dealing with, you know, the time. The first century was a very, even the first century before the persecution really got kicking in, people were still being persecuted. But it's fascinating how all these messages relate specifically to the times also as they unfolded through history. But all of them had a promise about eternal life, which is, again, the great hope of Christianity. If Christianity cannot promise you eternal life, then Paul says we are to be pitied among all people, above all people. And so ultimately, this is the great hope that we have, the resurrection, the eternal state with Christ, and this is a constant promise throughout the churches, especially with Smyrna because they were being persecuted, but this is also, again, related to the persecution of the Christians for over 200 years in that second church. Now, couple things here. A lot of people take the 
the whole thing. Now, first, actually, let me say this. There's no reproof. If you didn't notice that, Christ did not have any reproof for this church. It's one of the two that doesn't have reproof. Very interesting. So this church that was basically getting persecuted and dealing with suffering, they had no reproof from Christ, only commendations and the promise. Another thing is people who talk about the synagogue of Satan, this is <laughs> taken out of context quite a bit. And now there's a whole can of worms here and, and I'm not going to get into it, especially with YouTube and everybody being you know, ban happy, but you can understand from what I'm saying, what I'm pointing to. The synagogue of Satan actually has to deal with Christians. Because if you remember from Romans 2 verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, but not from God. And the verse before that says the same thing. For no one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So what's the idea here? All the apostles talked about spiritual things. They realized that the Old Testament was just types and shadows of future realities that would be spiritual. The This is, again, where dispensationalism gets caught up. They don't see that we are now in the New Testament. They still keep that dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles, where God united it under one people, right? So the, the Israelites were a chosen people, for sure, because they had to bring forth the Messiah. God was typifying through them, through physical things, like a sanctuary, like a high priesthood, you know, sacrifices, all these things that pointed to Jesus as a way to give us a physical understanding of a much greater spiritual reality. And when that spiritual reality came, that's the new reality. This is the fulfillment of everything that's been going on for the last 1,500 years, right? And so circumcision, high priesthood, sanctuary, all these things were physical things that were pointing to greater spiritual truths. And so by insisting that there's this delineation where the Bible actually says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's only one body. That's the body of Christ, the body of believers, one bride. God does not have two brides, the Jews and then the church. Do you see the problem here? But this is dispensational. So the point is this. To be a Jew in the New Testament sense, right, in the way, that, at least in the context of the things we're talking about, is to be a believer. It's to be a chosen person, meaning an elect in God's people and the body of Christ, right? In the Old Testament, the elect were the Israelites, or at least within the Israelites, put it that way, because there was a lot of rebellious Israelites. But there was a chosen physical nation. In the New Testament, everybody's invited to the gospel, but of course, not everybody's going to accept it because there are chosen people from every nation, every tongue, to be part of God's body of believers. That's the new body. That's the fulfilled body. And so when it's talking about the synagogue of Satan, now back to the point, it's not talking about actual Jews today or anything Jewish in the Old Testament sense. It's talking about people who are pretending to be false apostles, false teachers. But in reality... They're the synagogue of Satan. And this is the whole point, because that's that was a serious problem for the church. Even in the very beginning, the first couple centuries, we see from the Gospels, from the letters, from everything, that there were a lot of false... I mean, Judas is a perfect example. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. He was a false convert. And the term that is used for the future Antichrist personal aspect, 
however that's going to play out, whether it's the Pope or the future false Christ. Ultimately, what do we say about that? We say that the term used for this personal aspect is the same term used for Judas. So go figure. It has to do with a false believer. The parable of the sower, the parable of the five, uh, the ten virgins, five foolish, five wise. All these things have to deal with false converts because there are a lot of false apostles. I mean, look today, right? I mean, <laughs> plenty of examples wherever you look in the prosperity movement, the word of faith movement, the hyper charismatic movement, all these mega churches. You have plenty of examples of false teachers. And they are bringing in false converts because the true convert will last during persecution. The people that are being brought in with, you know, candies of abundance and word of faith and declare and decree, the moment that persecution would happen, they will give up their faith for something worldly. And this is the point. But here's another, again, another very key indicator that verifies this as a prophetic text. So, so far we've seen how these two, just the first two churches, align with history. Very true. The, the, the Ephesus was the apostolic church, and then what happened after that? Well, in the physical world, Smyrna was the next in line for the postal route. But in the time, that you know, in, in the, I guess, whatever, spiritual sense of it, or the historical sense, let's put it that way, the next phase of the church was the persecuted church. So you see how that aligns very neatly and it's very clear from the words as well. But now there's an important line here that's very prophetic. And if you remember the day to your principle, we have to be consistent. He says, do not fear you're about to be uh, thrown in jail. Behold, the devil is about to throw you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, this is our highlight. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. So now, again, this is a prophetic text because it talks about a period of 10 years, and specifically the persecution under Diocletian. So we're going to look at that. Okay, this is the Diocletian persecution. You can look this up on Wikipedia, but it was absolutely horrible. The Diocletian, or Great Persecution, was the last and most severe persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. In 303, the emperors Diocletian, Maximian, Galerius, and Constantius, not Constantine, but Constantius, issued a series of edicts rescinding Christians' legal rights and demanding that they comply with traditional religious practices. Here's another typological situation for the mark of the beast. God is using physical things in the history uh, history books to warn us about the future. These are precedents. These have happened throughout time. But anyway, moving on. Later edicts uh, targeting the clergy and demanded universal sacrifice, ordering all inhabitants to sacrifice to the gods. The persecution varied in intensity across the empire, weakest in Gaul and Britain, where only the first edict was applied, and strongest in the eastern provinces. So the eastern always had a history of persecution. That's why this relates both in actual time to the Church of Smyrna that existed, and also in prophetic time, because the east was always much more hardcore. Persecutory laws were nullified by different emperors, at different times, but Constantine and Licinius's Edict of Milan in 313 was traditionally marked as the end of the persecution. So what do you have? You have a persecution from 303, which is when it began, to 313 AD for a total of 10 years. Now again, 
This relates to the day to year principle. Every other time we've used this in Bible prophecy, it has checked out perfectly. So isn't that something, that the, that the second church in the postal route relates to the second phase of the church, and the marker that Christ gave, which is the 10 days in uh, tribulation, relates exactly to the 10 worst years. It's actually been bracketed off as a special persecution. It's called the Great Persecution of 10 years, and that relates perfectly. So very fascinating. Again, it just proves the genius of God. Now, the third church is Pergamum, and this, again, they're all in order in the postal route, but this is the next phase of the church, and it was from about 313 AD, again, give or take, to about 538 AD, and the reason I put 538 AD is when, if you are here with me for the previous episodes, 538 AD is basically when the papacy was established by Justinian, officially. But from 313, after the Great Persecution was ended by Constantine, to 538 AD, you saw all all these um, preliminary realignments, let me put it that way, preliminary realignments between paganism, institutionalization, politics, and Christianity. The devil saw, again, right or left, dark or light, which one can I get you with? The devil saw that it wasn't working to kill people, so he switched his tactic. He said, well, I can't get him with the dark. I'm going to get them with the false light, which is creating a counterfeit and just inviting everybody in. So instead of fear, you go with desire. Instead of bad cop, you go with good cop. Do you see how this works? And so this is what happened. And in the period between the, after the Great Persecution and until the papacy officially took power, which relates to the Little Horn and all the other prophecies, again, on the end times, prophetic timeline, you'll see how all these things align perfectly. It's 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 profound. You know, it really is. Once I put it all on paper, I was like, wow, this is really something. Really testifies to the genius of God. But this period of time is Pergamum. It's, it's the third church, the third phase of the church. And the name Pergamum is associated with, again, I'm not being dogmatic, but it's associated with elevation as in to lift something up, maybe to lift up yourself, to lift up the self, to lift up mankind over God in that sense. It's also associated with marriage or married, which again, so interesting because what happened during this period of time? Church and state were married together. This is the next phase of the church. And we see that in a lot of different things. But I want to uh, read a little bit of the text. This is Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to, the, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Again, we have this mention of Satan being in Pergamum. We'll see why. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on 
the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Very interesting stuff. I mean, there's just so much in these, so rich. But just going over some history that we've covered previously, Pergamum had a huge library, like Alexandria. It was a very occult place. They had a temple of Zeus. They had temple of Asclepius, which was like this serpent god that's basically advising humanity. Now, again, nothing new under the sun. Compare that to the who. Compare that to all these occult organizations that are still doing the same thing. And nothing has changed. Fundamentally, spiritually, nothing has changed. We're still in the Babylonian system. But remember this. The Babylonian priests, when they were conquered by the Persians, we're going back in time now to Daniel's prophecies where... You had Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, the four beasts. When Babylon was conquered, they basically established themselves. The priests ran away. They established their occult religion in Pergamum, and they worshipped Dagon, the fish god with the mitre and all that stuff. Again, we know where these things come from that you see today. But later on, many centuries later, Attalus III basically had they had their own little enclave okay but throughout this time throughout these different empires they kept the title pontifex maximus which again from babylon this title meant king and priest it, it was a counterfeit of christ it was basically the idea that you are god on earth you are the authority and you're also the spiritual authority you are god on earth and that's it's a counterfeit that satan created and they kept that title pontifex maximus in pergamum and worship there and, you know, all these satanic things. And ultimately, when Caesar took over that, I believe, in the second century BC, Attalus basically bowed the head and said, here, I'm going to give you this title now, Caesar. You become Pontifex Maximus. And then the Romans had it, and all the emperors were high king and high priest. And of course, during the time, especially between 313 after the Great Persecution and into 538 AD, where Justinian... Uh, officialized the papacy, you had you had this come to the forefront where the emperors began making, starting with Constantine, un- unifying church and state, began in making regulations on, uh, you know, church services and how things should be integrated with the state. You know, again, you had this pontifex maximus, this idea that there's a man that's a king and also priest who isn't Christ. And this is a big problem. And then, of course, when the Pope took over, which was the little horn power, the final iteration of this system, this Babylonian system, what does the Pope do? Well, the Pope takes the title Pontifex Maximus. So very interesting where these things come from, because, again, Pergamum is called Satan's throne twice by Christ. And so there's obviously something pointing to that, which, if you understand your history, it's the Babylonian system the Antichrist power on the earth, who has had many iterations, which now is in its final iterations. But it also mentions the doctrine of Balaam. And now Balaam, if you recall, basically, what did Balaam do? He, he enticed the Israelites into serving other gods through idols, through bowing down to various things. And what happened during this time? Again, this is, the, this is what I would call the compromised church. Five, 313 A.D. after the Great Persecution to about 538 A.D. until the Little Horn Power was established to, through the officializing of the Pope. But you see things like, for example, we've talked about this stuff 
um, you know, this is a classical numistics discussion. This is about coins, pagan and Christian iconography on the same coin. We talked about how uh, Constantine had like an image of Christ and then you had basically, or the, the Chiro, I should say, of Christ's name. But then on the other side, you had like Sol Invictus, the sun god. And you can look these things up. These are, you know, coins from history that prove that the spirit that was driving Constantine to unified church and state. Remember, we talked about the vision that he received. It was an antichrist spirit. God would not have told him, look, you know, you need to put Christ's name and then you need to put the sun god on the back. Constantine was a sun worshiper. He was a pagan sun worshiper who saw the advantage of bringing everybody into one system. Just easier that way. Let's not kill people. We need to build an economy. Let's let's make things better. And in the, in the process, he watered down everything and made this hodgepodge institutionalization, which again, today we have as the Catholic Church and all of the institutionalized churches that have broken apart from it. But we saw the merging or the marrying, right, of Christianity with paganism. We also saw Sunday laws, we saw regulations, institutionalizations, uh, fleshly ways of doing things, and, and tradition, the traditions of men. We, again, we saw Pontifex Maximus, and we saw the setting up of the abomination of desolation. Remember, the sanctuary is what's being made desolate. The sanctuary is a physical type and shadow for the plan of salvation. Now, the sanctuary in his final iteration as the second temple, was destroyed in like 70 AD. Okay, so when Daniel is talking about the abomination of desolation, and in Daniel 8, you have to remember now, these things are all tied together, where he's given the 2300-year prophecy. And Daniel asks, before that, he says, well, how long is the sanctuary going to be trotted on? Is it going to be made desolate, or is it going to be basically... How long is this going to, how long is the, I'm butchering the words because I don't have the verse in front of me, but how long is this whole thing concerning the sanctuary going to take? That's basically the question that Daniel's asking because he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's being given a lot of information. And the angel tells him 2,300 days. Now, of course, that's 2,300 years, which is well beyond when the second temple was destroyed. So obviously, it's not talking about a physical temple in the past. But rather, the physical temple being destroyed is a type and shadow for something spiritual, something much greater, something that is pervasive, which is that the gospel, which is the which is typified in the sanctuary of the Old Testament, especially the one that the Hebrews were using to travel around, the gospel is being made desolate. People are not entering through the right door. Who is the door? Jesus. You enter into a relationship with him. But if there's an institution that kind of looks like Christianity and it makes you feel really official and godly by doing all these works and, and various things and rat races and, oh, you, okay, you got to go to the priest and do this, then you got to bow down before this icon and you're being very godly doing these things, you're not entering through the door anymore. You're not entering through a direct relationship to Jesus. You're going back into a different type of sacrificial system, which is really the same system that's always been in human you know, consciousness is the idea that we have to work 
to reconcile ourselves in some way. But this is slavery because you can't. You can't reconcile yourself. But this is the system. And that system makes the plan of salvation, which is the sanctuary, desolate. That's the abomination. And that abomination was being set up during this third phase of the church, which is about talk, warning about Satan's throne. Where's Satan's throne? Babylon, Pontifex Maximus. It's warning about Balaam, which is bowing down to idols. What did, what did they do? They mixed pagan, you know, pagan ideas with Christianity. Statues, icons, praying to the saints, praying for the dead, you know, doing all these various things, worshiping on Sunday. I've talked about all this stuff. And again, we're not going to get into it because it would take forever to have this episode. But ultimately, these things we've talked about. And it's, it's setting up that abomination. And by the time 538 AD comes, you have the fourth church. And that church phase lasts a very long time. Because again, this relates to the book of Daniel. This relates to the first beast in Revelation. That fourth church is Theatira. And the name means daughter, which is very interesting. But it, it, this is also interesting. If you remember in Revelation 17, what is the punishment of Mystery Babylon? The, punish, the punishment of Mystery Babylon is to be burned with fire. This is all, God is extremely intentional. This is just so cool. In Leviticus, the punishment for adultery for a woman, a virgin who was living with her parents or her father, would be to be stoned to death. But if you were the daughter of the high priest, pay attention. This is so fascinating how this all ties together. If you were the daughter of the high priest, your punishment was to be burned alive, to be burned to death. And of course, fire is a symbol of God's judgment throughout the Bible. But if you were the daughter of the high priest, your basically punishment was to be burned. Now, we know that Babylon is a woman who represents a church because women always represent churches in prophecy. It did so in the Old Testament. It did so in the New Testament. It's the bride of Christ, the body of believers, the virgin. In this case, this is a prostitute. So it's a woman that's a prostitute. It means it's an apostate group of believers. It's an apostate church. And this woman is burned with fire. Now we know that's the punishment of Leviticus for the daughter of the high priest. Who's the high priest? It's Jesus. Theatira... The name for this fourth church relates to the word daughter. What was born during this time? From about 538 AD when the Pope came to power to about 1517 when the Reformation started. Again, these are approximates, but look at the phase of time. What happened? A daughter came up. Mystery Babylon. Which again still exists today. But this daughter, who's, who's she a daughter of? She's supposed to be a daughter of of the high priest, but she's a very bad daughter. She's a disobedient daughter. She's a rebellious daughter. Very interesting. So, so fascinating. But this is what happened. The new church was born, which is basically, again, the papacy came into power. It made this institution formalized and finalized, and it was a church-state union under one man as the Pontifex Maximus. Satan had created his counterfeit system. And again, we've seen this in history where Justinian in 538 basically decreed the papacy as the 
the moral authority as the supreme moral authority, the corrector of all things. And the Pope had his own little, you know, city and, and then they used not his own army, but he used other people's army. He had everything at his disposal. Just fascinating. Really, the history of these things are so fascinating. But this church was throughout the middle and the dark ages. And we'll read a couple of the verses here and then we'll come back to some commentary about it. But this is in uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. To the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now again, this is these are real people in real times. And these are all prophet these are also prophetic. Were there people were there genuine believers during the time of the papacy? Of course there were. They were being persecuted with Sunday laws and other things. So just because this is about the fourth phase of the church, namely the creation of this institution, the the Catholic institution, the state, the uh, papacy, the, the system, all these things that we're talking about, the union of church and state, there were still genuine believers. They were being under this system. And so the, the Christ is addressing both. Very interesting. Verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, very interesting name here, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Very interesting in context of Mystery Babylon. We'll talk about this. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theatra who do not hold this teaching, again, it's back to the believers now, who have not learned what, com- what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of stuff in here. Gosh, I mean, it's just so so interesting. You really could spend a whole episode on each of these churches, but the point is just to get an overview today to see again that historically the Bible unfolds prophecy throughout time. There is so much in here about the institution that arose beginning with Justinian's decree to officialize the Pope as the Pontifex Maximus. Now, we know this was throughout the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. A lot of horrible things happened, a lot of persecution. Theatra was also famous for, per, get this, for purple and crimson dye. Very interesting. This place, this physical place, was famous for creating purple and uh, crimson dye. In fact, Jezebel was supposedly part of some operation to do this. She had like, uh, you know, like a textile industry there, but she was also a real person. Very interesting. But the purple and crimson dye, what does that relate to? Do you remember? from Revelation 17. Who wears purple and crimson? Mystery Babylon. Who wears purple and crimson today? The Catholic Church. 
Isn't that just so fascinating? You have the bishops and the cardinals. So interesting. Again, all this stuff just ties together. But purple is royalty. And crimson, of course, is sacrifice. And all of this just points to the fact that it's a it's a power trying to counterfeit Christ. Counterfeit the real deal, which is that Christ is king and that he is the sacrifice for our sins. But if you go through the church, the Pope is king and you have redemption because of the church through the various things that you do, like sacraments and running the rat race of good deeds. And of course, we do good deeds because we're saved, but we don't do good deeds in order so that we are saved. And this is the problem. The The church has created a system where you are running a rat wheel of subscribing to the church, really, rather than having a relationship with Jesus. This is the thing that the prophets warned about, that Satan would counterfeit a plan of salvation, which of course he can't, but he's making his own counterfeit, where you basically pledge allegiance to the world, to his worldly system to save you and have a relationship with him through the Pope rather than having a relationship with Christ. This is, it's all, if you understand these simple things like that Satan wants to be God, that he puts your attention on the flesh, then you can see these things very clearly. But Jezebel, let's talk about Jezebel. So, so interesting. Again, all these things relate to, you know, the, the Jezebel in the Bible who married Ahab, what did she do? She led people to worship Baal. Very interesting. And again, there's a lot of correlation between the real woman who was in control of the textile industry at the time, who was obviously like a very rebellious woman. She was leading people into sexual immorality. Now, in a prophetic sense, sexual immorality relates to spiritual unfaithlessness and spiritual adultery, right? When you, when you are, again, Think of this very clearly. If Christ is the husband of the bride and we're the bride and you're going after other gods, you are being adulterous. You're being unfaithful. And so the physical relates to the spiritual. And so this woman who was Jezebel and who again relates to the real Jezebel in the Bible. I mean, she was real too, but the the historical Jezebel, let's put it that way, who led people to worship Baal, which is Satan, basically. And in that sense, she led them to be spiritually adulterous. This woman, many centuries later, also named Jezebel, real person who was most likely part of the textile industry there, based on other things. I, I didn't go into sources, but you can look into it. She was based on the, she was controlling the textiles there, which were, which were doing what? They were producing crimson and purple dye, which again, it's just so fascinating. So fascinating. It really just blows your mind. But this woman was leading people into doing real things like sexual immorality, you know, sacrificing to idols. But those things spiritually relate to even a greater. So you have three layers at least of meaning that are all related to each other. You have the ancient Jezebel. Then you have this sort of modern day, according to the, to the writing, Jezebel. And then all of these things relate to the greater spiritual reality of the Jezebel, which is really the mystery of Babylon, which again, Pergamum was the source of Satan's throne, Babylonian priests, this Babylonian system, purple and crimson sits on seven hills, the great city, mother of abominations. She's the woman that's burned with fire. She's supposed to be a daughter, but she's 
a prostitute. I mean, it all comes together. It's really so crazy. Now, it also says that Jesus also talks about the depths of Satan. And I believe that's talking about the occult because Rome, Rome after the burning of Alexandria basically got destroyed and Pergamum also got kind of shifted around. Everything went to Rome. Rome became the seat of the occult. And again, if you remember from Peter's first letter, he refer, he codifies Rome as Babylon, which doesn't make any sense if you're a Gentile, if you're an unbeliever. But if you are a believer, you understand the reference. So this idea that Babylon is Rome has been around for a very long time. That's straight from the first letter of Peter. And all of this ties again to what? Mystery Babylon. Rome is the city of seven hills. Rome is the center of the church of Rome. And the fourth church phase, Theatira, represents this church institution, this institution that basically took its place between man and God. And that lasted until the Reformation, when you had the reformers around, again, the, the beginning of the 16th century, 1517 is what I put it at, from about 1798. Uh, and again, these these times, they have, there, there's flexibility with it, but again, just see the periods. You had the apostolic church, you had the persecuted church, you had the compromised church, and then you basically had the apostate church, which is theatira, which is, again, now you're a full-blown apostate. You have a system that is antichrist. Before that was the compromised church. Okay, you have, you know, you're compromising some things and now you're a full-blown apostate. And of course, that leads to the Reformation, which is the Reformed Church. Now, I put that from about AD 17, or sorry, 1517, which is around when the Reformation started, to about 1798, when the French Revolution happened. And there's reasons for that, because it ties to the other prophecies. But this is the fifth church, and it's Sardis. Sardis relates to renewal. And also escape, which again, so interesting how these things relate to what happened during that time. What happened? Well, there was a renewal. Everybody wants to go back to faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, right? Sole fide, sole scriptura, sole Christos. And so ultimately you had this desire to get back to the truth, to repent of these institutional ways and get back to the truth, to put the power back in the people's hands. And, and by power, I mean knowledge of scripture, having a relationship with Christ directly, all these beautiful things that came out of the Reformation. And you also had escape. A lot of people were escaping. Some, like the Puritans, escaped to the United States. Now, that didn't last too long because 100 years later, you had a secret society basically take over and, you know, the second beast was born. And we talked about that. But nevertheless, the Puritans were Protestant. Protestants were escaping this system and and wanting to be out of there, to, to basically secede from the institution. And so you had the Reformed Church. Very interesting how it all relates together. But let's read this. This is in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation, excuse me, of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen that, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Remember then what you have received and have heard. Keep it. Repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Notice that he it's always about him returning and you not being ready. All the all the churches so far we've had this, there's a promise of what you get, but also there's a warning. Like, listen, if you're not, you know, being aligned here, you're going to be surprised when I return. Or when I return, I will consume you or I'll destroy you. Because what? You're going to be part of the people who will be judged. Yet, but again, just a quick note here before we proceed. Yet, we still know there's election and a electing sovereign purpose with it. So ultimately, you cannot lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying Christ is warning so that the people who are genuine believers will respond to this. And the people who are not, they'll fall away. They won't, they won't care. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is very important because it points to all the people who rejected that system. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Again, statement about eternity. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you have this period of time, which is the Reformation, and you had a couple things going on. First off, a lot of people, so it's addressing the people who are part of the system at first. Like, listen, you better repent. Get out of this system so you don't partake of its judgments, right? And then you have a mention of these people who, yeah, you have some people that will walk with me in white. People like the Reformers who wanted to get back to the truth. And all the people who basically protested, that's what Protestantism is. It's a movement. It's an attitude. It's an alignment. It's a position. Today, you know, because we're living in the end times, there's a lot of deception. There's now all these denominations in Protestantism. But really, Protestantism at its core is just a position. You are protesting the institutionalization of church. You are protesting the Catholic system. That's really what it's protesting. But this is what it's talking about. This this fifth age of the church, which again, I put from about 1517 to 1798, because in 1798, you had what? You had the French Revolution. You had atheism, Luciferianism. We talked about this in the Two Witnesses episode. The Two Witnesses are the Word of God. They were killed for three and a half days, and then they were resurrected. And basically what happened with the resurrection? Well, the resurrection was after a few years of the French Revolution and atheism kind of starting to sweep the world, the Western world, you had a resurrection. You had missionaries, you had Bible colleges, you had all these things we will look at, but you had the Great Awakening. And we'll look at that on Wikipedia. This is actually from the History Channel, but the Great the great Awakening, I don't really go into the History Channel for history, but this is a decent uh, description about it. So there's a couple Great Awakenings that happened. And the first Great Awakening is as follows. In the 1700s, a European philosophical movement known as the Enlightenment, which we talked about, it's very satanic, or the Age of Reason, was making its way across the Atlantic Ocean to the American colonies. Enlightenment thinkers emphasize the scientific and logical view of the world while downplaying religion. In many ways, religion was becoming more formal and less personal during this time, which led to lower church attendance. 
Christians were feeling complacent with their methods of worship, and some were disillusioned with how wealth and rationalism were dom- were dominating culture. Remember how in this section of the scripture we just read, how Christ said that you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Keep that in mind, because all this relates to exactly the climate of that time. Many began to crave a return to religious piety, right? Repent and return. Around this time, the 13 colonies were religiously divided. Most of New England belonged to congregational churches. The middle colonies were made up of Quakers, Anglicans, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed, and congregational followers. Southern colonies were mostly members of the Anglican Church, but there were also many Baptists, Presbyterians, and Quakers. The stage was set for a renewal of faith, and in the late 1720s, a revival began to take root as preachers altered their messages and re-emphasized concepts of Calvinism. Calvinism is a theology that was introduced by John Calvin in the 16th century from the Reformation that stressed the importance of Scripture, faith, predestination, and the grace of God. So a lot of good things came back into this. This was called the Great First Great Awakening. You could study you know, several hours on this, but there's a lot of great preachers that came out of uh, the Great Awakening. There's several. There's Some people say there's three Great Awakenings. We'll talk about the Second Great Awakening in a second. But um, the First Great Awakening was really kind of a revival that took place. And this is touched on in the Church of Sardis because the Church of Sardis, you had this transition that was coming with the... You have a lot of things happening. You have, first off, the, the uh, Reformation, right? And basically, you, you have this... This warning, like, listen, get out of the system. Go with the people that are walking in the white robes with me. Because what's the promise? You're going to have eternal life. Do not be part of this system. But then you had, as history progressed, you had Protestants, right, coming into the United States. They started getting complacent. And then again, you had the need for revival. So you have all these things setting the stage for really a great revival, which is, what this, the Church of Sardis paints of with its name, renewal and escape. You had the escape, which was the Reformation, and then you had the renewal, which was kind of revival that started to touch, especially uh, in the beginning of the 17th, 18th century, right, 1700s. And then you had the, the French Revolution, which kind of, again, the two, intersects with the two witnesses because you have all these things over, and that's why I have that... Um, that prophetic timeline, because you can see how all these things layer with each other. There's a lot of things going on. You had people breaking away from the Catholic system. Protestantism was born. But then you had all these denominations start forming, then they get complacent. And then there's revival, the first great awakening. But that kind of gets cut short by the French Revolution, atheism, secularism, the Enlightenment, Luciferianism, all these things start taking over. But then you have the second great awakening, which we'll talk about. We'll, we'll talk about with the uh, Church of Philadelphia, but all these things tie in with, with what, the prophecy of the two witnesses. So the fir- the churches of Revelation is the first prophecy in the Book of Revelation. It sets the timeline for everything in history. You have an it's by lay. It's like think of it like a cake. You have the, the bottom layer first. Christ gives you the phases of the church. And then next time we'll talk about the trumpets and the seals and you'll see how those relate to the judgments on various uh, 
things like Rome and, and the Jews and, and even the Catholic Church through Islam. We, we talked about this briefly in the episode on Islam, how Islam does have a part to play in the end times, but they also played a part in judging the papacy. Just like God used previous empires to judge, like Persia to judge the Babylonians, all these things are being portrayed historically in the trumpets and seals, just from different perspectives. One of them is from the perspective of those being judged. One of them is those from the uh, believer's perspective. But we'll talk about that in the future. The point is, John, through Christ, is laying these foundations, okay? First foundation is the, the phases of the church. And if you understand that, everything relates to this going forward, the first beast from the sea, the two witnesses. That's why I laid it out all on this prophetic timeline so that you could see visually how these things align. And that's why I said that this fifth church, again, I'm not being dogmatic, but really it's from the time of the Reformation to about the time when the two witnesses died. The word of God was killed because of secularism, the French Revolution, atheism. But then the next church, which is Philadelphia, came up right after that. So from the French Revolution, 1798, to about 1840, which this whole period of time is characterized by the missionary movements, the Bible colleges, Bible societies. There's the Second Great Awakening, which was, again, from about 1750 to about 1835. Again, these are just phases, but they're all part of the same phase of the church. And this was, again, like where the revival kind of took real steam and, and brought out some really great preachers, really great revival throughout the world. And it was... Overall, a great church. There's no reproof in this church, in the sixth church of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia means brotherly love. Isn't that interesting? Brotherhood, brotherly love, missionaries was characterized by a lot of missionary movements and going out in the world preaching the gospel, just like as it was in the first church, a very similar way. And so let's read number six about the sixth church of Philadelphia. This is from Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your work. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, false converts, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This is very important, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God, from my God, out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of great things in here, but first, again, you notice there's no reproof. Just like with Smyrna, this is the other church that has no reproof. Because this church was very short-lived, this phase of the church. They were... They don't have a lot of power, right? But they were mighty in the sense that God opened the door for them. He set an open door for them to go preach the gospel. And they succeeded. The missionary movements of the 
you know, late 1700s to the, to the 1800s were very successful. They spread Christianity throughout the world. And they spread the true gospel, which was very important, not just a institutionalized system. And so they were very successful. And because of that, God kept them from the hour of trial that is coming on the world. What does that mean? Well, they are the sixth church. They're not the last church. And so their role was to spread the gospel because of their faith. God kept them from the final hour, meaning the final generations that had to deal with the deception we're going to deal with, the mark of the beast, a unified system of church and state like there has never been before. All these trials are coming upon the earth, and we've talked about them in great detail. Again, if this is news to you, then I highly recommend that you go and check those out. But very important that, again, no reproof in this church, and it doesn't mean keeping, keeping, now here's an important point. Keeping you from the hour doesn't mean I'm going to rapture you. Okay, because first off, that was the sixth church. If, if we're looking at this prophetically, the sixth church has already come and passed. We're now in the seventh church, okay, because the missionary movements ended in the mid-1800s. We're now in the, the final church, which is from 1840s, let's say 1840s, to the present moment. This is the final church. So it's not talking about a rapture. It's just talking historically, I have kept you from the hour from the hour of trial. You're not going to deal with the mark of the beast. The sixth church isn't. The seventh church will, because they're the final church. Now, another thing I failed to mention, this kind of relates to the last two churches, which is the fifth and sixth church. But you also saw the Counter-Reformation. Now, we talked about the Counter-Reformation in great detail in previous episodes, and this relates more specifically to, I would say, the Church of Sardis, which is the fifth church. During the Reformation, what also happened? You had the Counter-Reformation. Very, very important. And that's important because all the things that people believe today, like dispensationalism, have their roots in the Counter-Reformation. Remember, during the Reformation, all the Reformers identified not only that, hey, this is we need to get back to a Christ-centered faith, but we re- they realized who the Antichrist system is. They realized the abomination of desolation. They realized the Catholic system, the papacy is the little horn, mystery Babylon. And so that was a real problem if you're the papacy. And so the papacy started an alternative way of interpreting the Bible that would obfuscate, hide, confuse, distract, from the truth by interpreting things very literally, very fleshly, in a way that doesn't let you know the truth. So that's an important thing to notice and to mention. We didn't I didn't mention that in the previous thing, but that's something we've talked about before. So the final church of Revelation is Laodicea. And we're going to read this a little bit because Laodicea means people ruling or just people, like justice, just people. And of course, we we are in some sense ruling because we're the final church. We have the most technological comforts. We have, you know, the internet. We can learn so many things. We have so many things that are at our disposal. We're at the final point of history. We can look back and see everything. Uh, you know, we have great knowledge. But of course, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. So verse 14 of chapter 3. This is until verse 22. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. Remember how we talked about the other churches and how richness was compared, like Smyrna was poor, but they were actually rich in God's eyes. Well, in this case, look at this. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And, and indeed, we're very comfortable with our wealth. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So pretty harsh rebuke there from Christ saying that basically you have all these worldly comforts, but you they're not amounting to anything spiritually. Compared to, again, Shmirna, which was very poor, but very rich in faith. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. All of these are spiritual truths, right? Relating to being clothed by the robe of righteousness that Christ gives us, by being refined by fire, which is what tribulation, do not be, you know, don't fear tribulation. Uh, embrace it and rejoice when you meet sufferings of various kinds. Doesn't James say that? So ultimately, these are spiritual truths. And, and salve to anoint your eyes. So again, having wisdom to see spiritual things, so important throughout this whole series. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So this is all coming from love, of course. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is also a very important sentence. We'll come back to it. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So again, another proof that Christ is already ruling. Sat, sat down. This is a past tense thing. When was this letter being written? This was written after Jesus' ascension. Did Christ ascend and sit down on the throne and start ruling? Yes, he did. That's the point. He's already ruling, so he's already king, meaning we're already in the millennium. Very, very important. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, a lot that we can take here. Very interesting historical fact is that Laodicea was actually known for its lukewarm water pipes, believe it or not. We're going to read something here about that. Very interesting. This is from uh, a blog about the Holy Land, but let's see what it says. The water law marble block, this is a discovery, uh, block dating back to 114 AD, the time of the Roman Emperor Trajan, included strict measures regarding the use of water coming from the Carci Mountain through channels to the city, as well as the use of a fountain dedicated to Roman Emperor Trajanus. The rules were prepared by Anatolian state governor Achilles Viserys Metrialis. Some commentators thought that the water was piped from the hot springs at Hierapolis, six miles over to the north, and that by the time the water arrived at Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Isn't that interesting? But no such water system has ever been found, and modern scholarship, including the excavator of Laodicea, Professor Shalal Shimshek, have rejected this theory. Laodicea received its water from springs to the south of it via an aqueduct and an inverted siphon system. So you have uh, like basically these discoveries of these aqueducts 
And there's basically a marble tablet that showed that they they did have these things going on where they were siphoning water uh, from from these sources. And by the time it was coming into Laodicea, even though these people rejected it, there have been new discoveries that showed that this was actually the case, that these aqueducts were siphoning water from several miles away. And by the time the water got there from the hot springs, it was lukewarm. So there was a, again, God uses, it's, it's so phenomenal how all these things intersecting were planned deliberately. It's, it's really crazy, but God uses physical things for spiritual. And again, the point is that we are a wealthy church physically. We have the internet, we have all knowledge, we have the comforts of life. Everything is so easy compared to previous times. And yet we are lukewarm. This is the lukewarm church. And you look at all the things we've talked about, especially in the image of the beast episode, mega churches, uh, you know, hyper charismatic movement, prosperity gospel. What does the prosperity gospel have to do with the actual truth of the Bible? Nothing. It's the opposite. It's telling you that God wants you to prosper and, and he's going to make sure that every day you have is going to be full of sunshine and roses. When in fact, we read the opposite in these chapters of Revelation. Christ tells the second church, the persecuted church of Smyrna, that they are rich because they are suffering. And then he tells the Laodicea, the rich church, meaning the actual rich church, that they're very poor because they are not suffering, because they're not really committed. They're, not, they're neither here nor there, right? And that's ultimately something that we can embrace today as a loving rebuke, because we, I mean, even speaking for myself, ultimately, like, I think, like, gosh, you know, you think of these people that were persecuted, hunted down, you know, martyred. That's just horrible. That's just horrible. Anybody would would be afraid of that kind of thing. And yet these people, I mean, of course they were afraid, I'm sure, but they endured. And you wonder, like, do I have that kind of endurance? You know, I pray to God that when the time comes that I have that strength and that he sustains, and he will. He will sustain his elect. But the point is that we are very, we have very cushy lives. We have very cushy lives. We're neither hot nor cold. And that relates to physical things that happened. And again, he gives a warning, just like he does with other churches. Not all of them, but most of them he gives a warning. In this case, the warning, again, you have two things that are indicative of, of this being, again, a time prophecy. The first thing is the warning. The warning is that he's going to spit you out of his mouth. Compared to the like the first church where he said, I'm going to replace you. I'm going to take your lampstand and give it to somebody else. I'll replace you. Why? Because there's more people coming down the road. But if he's spitting you out of his mouth, there's no other church left. That's it, right? So if you're a false convert and you have lukewarm faith, then you will be one of the people that says, Lord, Lord, open up. And he's going to say, depart. I never knew you. Now, of course, again, there's an electing purpose there, so don't get anxious that you're one of those people because those who are elect know his voice. If he never knew you, that means you were never chosen because he's lived forever. If he chose you, he's always known you. If he didn't choose you, he never knew you. See how that works? It's all It all makes sense. But the point is that there's no other church. There's no eighth church. So that's why... This is a very final thing to be spit out of his mouth. Now, the other thing is, we want to compare, this is the second thing about how we know this is a time situation. In Revelation 
um, 3 verse 11. This is from the Church of Philadelphia. This is the sixth church. The timestamp is what? I am coming soon. Hold fast that you ha- what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So there's a sense of urgency there in the sixth church. But then the seventh church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Like literally, I'm coming soon, meaning I'm not at the door yet. But then the seventh church, like, behold, I'm at the door. I'm knocking. This is your final, <laughs> the seventh church is your final warning to the world to repent and abandon, you know, the, the lies of the devil and come to the truth. So there is this sense of getting closer and closer, which again, it's all relating to the prophetic sense of this seven churches prophecy. Now, another thing that's important is there's no commendation for this church. <laughs> Unlike, like Shmirna had no rebuke, Laodicea is the only one that doesn't have a commendation. There's nothing that like Christ is saying, yeah, you're doing a great job on this. Very proud of you or very, you know, I like I like what you're doing. There's nothing like that for us. We're the final church. We have to get our act together because we're living in the most deceptive time of human history, both in the sense of doctrine, of all the things we've talked about, and in the sense of the comforts of technology, that we've been fooled into believing that we don't, there's no Genesis curse, there's no suffering, you know, there's nothing like that. There's no persecution. And yet you've seen since 2020, the, the teeth of the beast, they, they, she snarled a little bit. And she's going to snarl much harder in the coming years. But you saw that in the last couple of years, what it's capable of, and it's going to get much worse. And this is the reality. I mean, ultimately, it's not going to get better. It will when Christ returns. But in the short term, the Bible is very pessimistic. And unless we align with that, not in a sense like, woe is me, let me despair, but in a sense like, okay, I need to, I need to let go of this world and not make plans around it and get attached to it and you know, just be in the world. I need to just mentally prepare for that and remember and set your eyes on the resurrection, on the hope, the return of Christ. That's what every church has been promised. And of course, in this age, we, we have the promise that we might see that being fulfilled, which is pretty insane. So all of these things point to a prophetic timeline of events. As you can see, there's physical things that relate to these churches that relate to the actual you know, spiritual state of the churches and the spiritual quality of these things unfolding in history. It's very profound. So I hope you've seen some of these things, but the time ranges for the churches are, again, just estimations. I, I'm not being dogmatic about the times. Some things are pretty clear, like, again, the, you know, the persecution of the Christians up until 313 when it ended. That's a pretty hard date. But again, it's about phases. You had the apostolic church, then you had the persecuted church, then you had the compromised church where it was phasing into this final world power system. Then you had that system come to the forefront. The daughter, remember, the daughter that's going to be burned alive when when Christ returns, the system that's going to be destroyed. Then you had the church of Sardis, which is basically coming out of that system and beginning revival, but then, you know, getting lukewarm again. And then you had Philadelphia, which is full-on straight revival in response to the death of the two witnesses, the word of God, because of atheism and secularism. 
And then that cooled off, and now you've had Laodicea since the 1840s. And what do we what have we had since the 1840s? Well, you've had evolution, you know, more theosophy, enlightenment, communism. I mean, the Mormon Church, Jehovah's Witnesses. You had so many things that have come up since then. Literally, Satan is on his final, you know, attack before he rounds up the world into one religious political system under himself. This is the church that we're living in. And that church is full of lukewarm faith. So it's an encouragement from Christ because remember, he he re, reproves and rebukes with love and those that he loves. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't care to rebuke you. This is the point. So it's it's an, a warning and a not a commendation, but a... Um, just an advice, just basically a warning to be aware so that we can look within ourselves and say, is my faith lukewarm? Is my faith lukewarm? Am I doing the most that I can with the God, with the gifts that God has given me? Am I, am I relying too much on the world? Am I planning my life 20 years in advance and putting my hopes in this system rather than putting my hopes in the return of Christ and the resurrection? Am I, am I sharing the gospel with people? Am I praying every day. And again, it's not that your works save you, but we have to examine ourselves and see is our faith lukewarm or not. And ultimately, that's something that's very important in this day and age because we are the lukewarm church. But here's the main point. The order of the churches is exactly the order that we see in history. So the postal route that's followed, it's exactly what we saw in the faces of the church during the millennial kingdom. This is what the whole point is. From the very beginning of Revelation, Christ is laying the foundation prophetically of what's going to happen until he returns, so that you are absolutely clear on where you fit into everything. Very, very generous, very gracious of him to do that, honestly. But Christ is giving us a prophecy so that we can pinpoint with accuracy where we are and understand what his advice for us is. So where are we? We're in the lukewarm church. We're in the final church. And again, if you combine that with other things that we'll see, like the trumpets and the seals, you'll see that we are in between the sixth and seventh trumpet or the sixth and seventh seal, meaning there's only one to go and that's the return of Christ. All the other ones have been fulfilled. We are not just in the seventh church, we're at the end of the seventh church. I, I, mean, I truly do believe that. We'll see that in the next couple episodes, but combine it with other previous things we talked about, like the beasts of Revelation the first beast of the sea from John, the second beast coming up, all these things are in the past. So we are very much using all these things to triangulate where are we in time so we know what, how to interpret the events, we know what Christ has intended for us, and it's very clear. We're the lukewarm church, we're at the end of the end. We're in the generation, I believe, the final generation, where it will see the return of Jesus. And so, what do we take from that? Well, we take that the Bible is true. This is just another proof that it's a true testimony of reality, because prophecy is the mark of God. So, learn the truth, share the gospel, lean closer to God as much as you can, let go of this world, learn to be a little more self-sufficient, and prepare mentally and spiritually for what's to come, because the truth is that it will get worse. We saw a taste of it in 2020, that's just a taste. What's coming is 
a universal worldwide acceptance of the beast. Now that could be with a false Christ, like we've talked about. That could be a union of church and state, a, a revival of Christian nationalism. Again, if this sounds crazy to you, go go look at the previous episodes. I promise you that if you are diligent and you entertain those presentations, you will not think that I am crazy when I say Christian nationalism is the real problem and it's coming back. But at the same time, don't get too pessimistic. Get excited because what it means is that eternity with Christ, with new bodies, with a, rede- with a renewed creation, free of evil, free of all this nonsense in this clown world that we live in. It's all on the horizon, folks. It's all on the horizon. Jesus is coming back and we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I hope to be alive that day. I mean, I know what the cost is going to be. It's going to be absolutely terrible. But at the same time, I do hope to be alive today just to see it all happen. But who knows? God has a plan for each of us. And whether we live, we live for Christ. Whether we die, we will be resurrected and we live for Christ. So don't despair. Look, it's going to get worse. But that all that means is that it's getting closer and closer. So I hope you've learned something today. Next time, we'll look at the trumpets and the seals. And until next time, remember, just cling close to the Lord and he is always with you. He'll always provide for you. All these things are a little scary, but in the end, just remember that the end of this story is a good one. So uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.